Hello and welcome. This is Allison Hassler and Russell Williams. We are here with Small Town Big Business, our podcast to talk to you about the why and the how great businesses thrive in towns of 50,000 population or less. And we are here in Marion, Illinois. We're coming to you from the Citadel building right here on Tower Square Plaza. And it's the home of Ethos Marion. We're an emerging small business incubator co-sharing working spaces. Alice and I are interviewing successful business people, particularly in Marion, Illinois, but also the surrounding Midwest community. If you want to connect with us, you can connect through Russell at watermarkethos.org. Thank you so much for joining us and hope that you will subscribe to this podcast and join us for another upcoming episode of Small Town Big Business. Hello and welcome. This is Allison Hassler and Russell Williams. And we are here with Small Town Big Business, the how and the why business works in small towns in middle America. And we are here at the Ethos Building. Yeah, the Citadel on Tower Square Plaza in downtown Marion, Illinois. We're going to talk more about the Citadel in our interview today. And today for our interview, we have the Honorable Mayor, Mike Absher. Welcome, Mike. Good morning. Tell us a little bit about about your background. Um, Specific to business background, right? Well, uh, and maybe tied to your hometown, too, because Marion, of course, is your hometown. Yeah. Well, um, I I kid about it, but I'll just put it this way, that I have tried to escape many, many times, but I've always found found it uh, advantageous to stay here, ultimately, and to be grounded here. So I'll just leave that that way for now. But... uh, uh, I intended to do something completely different um, than what I ended up doing in college, and maybe we can talk about that, or in uh, high school, I should say, what I thought I would be doing by this point in my my life and so forth. But uh, flash forward through some of that, and fast forward through some of that, and then when I graduated college in uh, at SIU in Carbondale, and I got a, <clears throat> a degree in a new program that was uh, new to my class, as a matter of fact. It was a, a specialty in entrepreneurship in the Department uh, College of Business. And so it was very much of a different format than what they had done before, very much more uh, small group, work group uh, studies and, and things as opposed to lecture halls and, and wrote four, seems like four billion business plans in, in college in my life. And uh, so that was a, a new experience that just so happened to, to very much prepare me academically for what I ended up doing. Um, but uh, I did the safe thing, ultimately, back then. My family, is a, uh, for three generations, has been in the car business in Marion. And so I worked full-time while going to college in the business and then did so for, um, let's see, after high school, I did so for 14 years, almost 14 years working for my family and ultimately became a part owner of that business, of that small business. But then um, I, at that time, this is going back into the early 2000s, at that time there was a a movement, if you will, going on in the car business relative to um, when you, if anybody that's bought a car and you go and do the paperwork and they pitch a bunch of 
products to you, like a service contract, gap insurance. At the time, it was life and health insurance and some other things, you know, wheel protection and paint protection and that stuff. There was a movement at that time to, to get that process to be much more consumer-friendly, much more uh, compliant, if you will, in terms of how it was all disclosed to a customer. Car business had a somewhat deserved reputation of, of that being sort of you know, slid in front of the customer, this kind of thing. or, But a lot of it, too, was is how long it took to sell all those products. And so there was a movement. This was not my idea. Matter of fact, it was an old idea called menu selling, which, as the name implies, comes from the restaurant industry. And if you think about the, the analogy there is McDonald's, when I was a kid, you just ordered a hamburger and milkshake and fries separately. They did not have value meals until I was in high school, I think. and uh, But they figured it out quick, is that it's quicker, more efficient, and I think in the restaurant industry, actually, they determined people would buy more product if you packaged it. And so that's, in, in essence, what was being done in the finance world inside of car dealerships at that time, was trying to figure out how to package it and make it quicker, um, more consumer-friendly, more compliant legally, and... Um, Ultimately, I guess there was a hope that people would buy more product that way, just like McDonald's had. Well, but that was a manual process. They were still writing all this out, these packages, and there's lots and lots of math involved and iterations involved with the math with these products. So the person that came to me saying, you guys ought to do this process, um, basically I retorted and said, well, man, there ought to be a computer that could do all this math because it's not going to be faster if you have to write all this out, and especially, I said, what if, what if one of these packages, these, these four things that you're picking out for the customer in advance of talking to the customer, what if they want some different combination? And he goes, well, you just rip off a new piece of paper and you start, I was like, oh, mm-hmm. that's not going to work. That's not faster, for sure. So I said, computers ought to be good about this kind of thing. You know, they, That's what they're good at. And, and you should be able to just click a couple of things and change here and there and print a new one for them to look at. And what year was this? That, was, that conversation was in 2001. Okay. Um, and basically he said, well, you're pretty good with computers, or he, his perception was, why don't you build a mousetrap? And so I kind of took that as a challenge. I quickly found out that, that my... Uh, my skills were limited to rows and columns of spreadsheets, essentially. I was not, and interestingly, maybe we'll touch on this later, because to this day, I've got this reputation of being a computer programmer of some sort, which is so not the case. I could only do collateral damage in the, ultimately the software company that I founded if they ever turned me loose with the code, which did happen a couple of times. I thought I would fix something, and it didn't get fixed. Uh, I've been that person, though, relative to that, that knew what, from a user standpoint, if you push this button, this is what needs to happen to make it for, in my case, I knew what the mentality was. I was a finance and insurance professional, if you will, inside of the car business. That was kind of my bailiwick at the time, my wheelhouse. And so I knew how people that did that job, which is very unique personalities that do that job well, I knew how they would think. And they were not computer literate people, especially at that time. Uh, Matter of fact, I challenge you to go look at your paperwork when you bought a car. I'll be willing to bet you that your paperwork is done in all capitals. 
The reason is, is F&I people are, are generally not even adept enough to take the caps lock off. And I'm not <laughs> mm-hmm. kidding. Go look at your paperwork. <laughs> see if I'm telling the truth. Every one of you, go look challenge at your... Accepted. Go look. See if all your paperwork's done in all caps. So that was a challenge, right? There, where I was not... Now, at the time where that conversation is taking place, I'm trying to figure out how to do that just for our dealership. I did not have a wider uh, thing envisioned there, but it quickly turned into one. It was such a hot topic at the time um, in the industry. Again, not a new concept, but the concept of automating it was. And so uh, that was the challenge if, if we were going to sell it. And basically what happened is is one of our manufacturer reps that was trying to um, sell maintenance packages, not service contracts, but maintenance. So getting your oil change, you know, packaging up oil changes. They recognized back then, which turned out to be very prophetic and correct, is that they knew that cars were getting better and better and better on the manufacturing side. And so service business at dealerships was going to keep declining warranty claims and these kind, of, which absolutely happened, uh, still is happening to this day. Uh, so they knew that to preserve some of that service business, they needed to reach that point of sell, sale and sell maintenance packages. And so that manufacturer's rep had heard, I don't know, probably through our F&I person, that I was working on this, which was pretty rudimentary at the point. And I showed him what it was, and he invited me to. That was Chrysler at the time. And long story short, Chrysler paid to have, I didn't even have a company. All I did have, all I had was just basically a spreadsheet. Um, and I had met somebody online, which was very much in its infancy. Now that's passe to say you're talking to somebody online. When you're talking back then, it was MSN Messenger. That's all you. I mean, that's what I had. And I met a very young person that turned out to be a one of seventy four what they call MVPs, uh, most valuable professional that Microsoft recognized as a an expert in the language that Excel was written in, interestingly enough, which is Visual Basic for applications. So I had met him through a mutual friend. He lived in South America and was very young, but was an expert in this. And he had helped me just on piecemeal this thing together in, in terms of a piece of software, which was, at that, like I said, at that point, was really nothing more than a, a spreadsheet. But Chrysler asked me to uh, test that in 60 dealerships at their expense, and we did. And then the next thing I knew, I had a, a group call me. I started advertising a little bit with the money that they paid me, still trying to maintain my job for my family. That ended up being a real problem. My family was not happy about it. I literally was trying to serve two masters, so to speak. So in um, the, the first quarter of 2003, I had to make a decision. And, and uh, my mom and dad were getting ready to retire. And so I either had to buy out the business with my brother or I had to go into this crazy world that nobody thought I could get done and, and do. And it was pretty crazy. And I had a wife in law school and pregnant at the same time and with also one other son already. So it was a scary time. Uh, but that's kind of how it all got started and went from there. That worked out very well. Um, and your decision was in 2003? Well, I... I uh, I decided to sink or swim, so I jumped off the, the family business, so to speak, resigned, and um, worked out of my bedroom trying to sell software for a while. And then, like I said, that worked. Um, it was a magical, magical time. I, I had just 
the blessing or ability, I'm not sure exactly what it was, of being able, and then that's seemingly, I don't know if that's my doing or if it's just God's grace or providence or whatever, but I, I've uh, somehow found this niche of being able to find the right people, always, and um, basically enabling them and letting them do their thing. And If you find that and let them do their thing, that's worked out very, very well for me in that world and continues to in the car business to this day. Um, I ended up selling, go back a step, I sold that software company uh, because a competitor approached me at a trade show, basically. We had just received the endorsement of Honda, and we were they contracted us with us to install our software in 1,100 Honda and Acura dealerships. And, and long story, but my competitor could not stand it. Um, it was a big business. They, my competitor, they could have crushed me in a heartbeat, but instead they decided to buy it out. Mm-hmm. Um, so... They did, and I sold, and I retired for about three hours <laughs> at 35, and then decided that I missed the car business and I wanted to get back in it. Made that decision that I wanted to stay here in Marion. As opposed, I literally could have moved anywhere in the world. Contemplated moving several places in the world. Uh, Tell us this, more about that. Um, well, the funniest part of it is I, I was telling Allison before we started is uh, in my more manic mode after that I had we had just interestingly enough just gone the before I sold the company the prior fall in 2005 had a, a client in Hawaii that had several dealerships that they wanted our software but they they demanded and this is literal it's not tongue-in-cheek they demanded that I personally come on site to install so I would personally sold it to them over the telephone but they personally demanded that they would pay for my travel, but they wanted me to come install it. So I happily obliged, but I took my family with me for two weeks. And uh, we ended up staying on the island of Kauai. So when the following spring, when that opportunity came and we sold the company, then closed in the summer, I had made up my manic mind at that point. We were going back to Hawaii. And um, to the point, except that my wife said, and it, it stopped with this practical realization she said you know michael you're just going to end up selling necklaces on the beach somewhere you're not this is not going to work for you right you know this you know this isn't working well that's encouraging yeah smart woman so i said yeah you know that's probably you're probably right but that being said that's just sort of an extreme example we could have moved elsewhere but uh, i uh, had a a great friend talk about selling stuff in in my eighth grade excuse me, seventh grade year of junior high here in Marion, right down the street at Marion Junior High, I was in the band, and the band sold grapefruit and oranges for their fundraising every winter, and so they had a contest to see who could sell the most fruit. And so I was determined to win it, and I ended up tying with somebody. But nonetheless, I cold-called Don Fisher, a man named Don Fisher, that owned Marion Ford, who was the biggest dealership in town and, uh, you know, my family sold Jeeps and American Motors, and, and that was not a product that lots of people sold, sought out at that time. We were the little, little bit of guy literally on the wrong side of town, and this was the, this was the cat's meow. I was like, oh, my gosh, it's the big Ford dealer. Uh, I, my brother drove me around because I didn't have a driver's license yet, and I, I ended up selling fruit to every dealer in town. But I walked in. I walked to Marion Ford, and... Um, this band opened the door for me to the showroom, and I went in and asked for the owner, and it turns out that was Don that was opening the door for me, which in of itself made an impression to me. 
after the fact. Well, we, I sold him, I think, 84 boxes of fruit. And um, he ended up becoming a mentor, a very, very good friend, and uh, literally for the rest of, of his life. And he unfortunately passed away um, three years ago this fall and uh, ended up buying a house from him uh, later. And um, when... Talk about Marion. I got to tell you this one little quick story because it's so integral. And I just lost this person this year that was this other mentor to me that just changed the course of things for me on this thing. So when I decided to get back in the car business, oddly enough, it was another dealership that, other than the one I bought that was presented to me uh, as available. And it's in another town very close to here. And I was very, very interested in it. And I went to bounce this idea off this mentor who was older than me, somebody I respected a great deal. And he asked me the most critical, life-changing question. And he said, well, Mike, if you want to be in the car business again, why don't you go seek out the dealership you want to buy, not just the one that's available to buy? And I said, well, because I've asked him six times. And he said, no. And he goes, well, maybe the seventh time is the charm. And that turned out to be exactly the case. And so that one question... um, which is really important in my whole story. And, and, and not only have I been able to find the right people to buy into a vision and do the things that, that we see collectively is necessary to make a company successful or what I hope makes our city successful now in this role, but it's also the ability to listen to other people and, and res- I mean, intently listen, ask them a real question and listen for the real answer and be willing that sometimes they're hard answers, uh, but that's been a critical component of kind of my story and my trajectory. So anyway, I ended up approaching Mr. Fisher, uh, my friend, and um, for the seventh time, and uh, it just so happened something had happened in his life literally the day before uh, that changed his opinion, and the rest is history. And so seven dealerships later with Marion Ford, now Watermark Ford Hyundai, still as the rock of our organization, the, the center, um, here I am, still in my hometown, doing business and and uh, having fun, and and uh, that's awesome stories. Yeah. So things had to line up behind the scenes that you didn't know about, but you also had to be bold and confident and reach outside yourself a little bit with with a mentor's advice. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. I want to circle back. Ah, there we go. <laughs> to, I'd like to circle back to the. Uh, the part where, and you have mentioned this in a little bit more detail in at at some point in time where I've listened to um, to your conversations of when you left the family business mm-hmm. and took that leap of faith into your own business with the software company. I'd like to go into just a little bit more detail about where you were in your life, where you and your wife were. Uh, you have made the um, illustration that you were literally on a card table in your living room um, and at some times were struggling to make ends meet. Yeah. And I would like to go into just a little bit more detail with that as I feel like that step one or that step from zero to one or from one to two is a lot easier to identify with than that step from seven to 10, uh, for a lot of listeners. So can you talk about where, where you were and what, 
what that looked like in that time? Well, the most the thing that comes to mind first that I feel compelled to tell, which I think for anybody that's aspiring to start a business or, or expand theirs, I think this is an important point because it happened to me. Um, it's, it's not a good story on me personally. So the, the night, my last day at the dealership, understanding that's basically all I had ever really known, and it was about as secure as it could be for a however old I was, 32-year-old, whatever, 33-year-old at that time, I guess. Um, so I go home that night. The next day I'm starting my, I mean, you know, I, I'm, I'm either sinking or swimming starting the next day. No more paychecks, no more health insurance. We, did, we had lost two automobiles. We had demos at that time. Uh, like I said, we had one kid, one in the oven, and Cheryl was in the middle of law school. And you moved into the bedroom office. I moved into a spare bedroom <laughs> as opposed to the living room, oh. but that's okay. There was a, there was a card table involved. Uh, but I had a panic attack. I, abs- I didn't recognize it at the time, but I freaked out. I was really nervous, and, when it, and I got overwhelmed, and it was my wife that talked me down off the ledge. Now, I, I think, at least my perception of things is, a lot of times, particularly... The even though Cheryl was in law school and obviously doing that, she was still the homemaker. And so I think the homemaker in lots of relationships is the the one that's the nesting one, and maybe even more conservative from a there. You know, if you think about the the stories, TV shows, or whatever, sometimes I perceive it's the wife that doesn't want the the uh, type A husband to, to quit the job and do those kinds of things. In my case, if it hadn't been for her saying. And knowing me so well that if you do not try to make this work, you'll never forgive yourself. And that she's making that judgment based on another terrible decision I made when I was in college, uh, which harkens back to what I had originally planned to do that is still a, a something I'll never forgive myself for and doing. And so she knew that. And basically, you know, the rest is history. My point of demonstrating that is, is it's, imp- it, it's critical to have these conversations with your spouse. If you've got these aspirations, um, they can, in my case, they will either make it or break it. Cheryl made it. I mean, there's, I have to give her if you, one, if there was one critical moment that I have to go back to and say, what, what did it work? Or when did it, when did, was it decided? Mm-hmm. Well, she kind of decided she, she made me, even though that's what I wanted to do, I was freaking out. I mean, that that particular moment, and this didn't last more than 15 minutes, by the way, but it, it could have gone the other way. Yeah. I could have called my mom and dad going, oh, my God, I made a mistake. Can I come back to work tomorrow? Yeah. I didn't, but that wasn't because of my intestinal fortitude. It was because of hers. And so I think it's so important in all of this, particularly these brand new businesses or this just if it's an idea you gotta discuss this with your spouse that they've got to be in it to win it with you or it probably will not work out um so that's i I don't know if that's what you wanted me to talk about you obviously didn't because i don't think you know that story but uh you know kind of going from the zero to one and and to the instead of the seven to ten concept or whatever one comment that i'd like to make that something came to mind when you said that goes back to a previous statement. I'm not kidding. I bet I've written 400 business plans in my life to the point that I will never write another one. 
that's not to say that I encourage people not to write business plans, but I, I am a believer that the best business plans right here. If you don't understand it front and back within here, a business plan is just to convince somebody else that you know what you're talking about. Um, but I'm a firm believer, you talk about going from zero to one. I'm a firm believer in if you do everything else right, gross profit follows. Now, when you say gross profit, that's a ominous to some people, an ominous and even an evil sounding term. But substitute gross profit for whatever it is you seek. Maybe that's a relationship full of love, what you know, love, or if it's a, a civic position to where you can help your town. Whatever it is, if you just concentrate on the things that are right, those things will follow. They they don't always follow immediately. But my point is, is to go from zero to one. I just had to sell the next customer. Yeah. And the next day, after my panic attack that night, we literally went, keeping in mind we didn't have any cars anymore, and went and bought a car and didn't buy it from my family, oddly enough, because I had a customer in St. Louis at that point that used my software. And so we went and um, actually bought two cars that day, a junker for me and a nicer car for Cheryl because she had to travel back and forth to school. We stopped off at Staples in O'Fallon and bought a stapler, the cheapest fax machine I could find, a couple of pens, a ruler. I think it's the day I bought my first cell phone. But anyway, it was, I remember it so explicitly. It was $326.94. <laughs> and I put it on my credit card because I didn't have the money. And I told Cheryl on the way home, I said, Cheryl, I had hired one employee at that point, which was a friend of mine from high school. Again, being able to, it was, happened to be a computer programmer that I needed, it's Sarah. Yeah. Uh, but she didn't live here either. At that point, she was working remotely, but I had hired her while I was still trying to do both. And I had a little mini panic attack, not really panic attack, because I was in it at that point. I was swimming. I'm in the middle of the ocean at that point. But I said, Cheryl, I have got to sell five customers, new customers, our software this month, or I either can't pay Sarah or I can't make her house payment. Which do you think I can get by with longer? And basically, again, given the strength of Cheryl, she said, as a budding attorney, she said, well, it'll take you them 18 months to kick us out of our house. <laughs> so I suggest, legally, I suggest you pay Sarah so that the, the she didn't use the term house of cards, but that it doesn't all collapse. But she said, furthermore, I suggest you sell six. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so my point is, you can get overwhelmed with, where am I going to be in five years? Where am I going to be in, in 10 years? Whatever. Just do your thing. Yeah. Sell and your software. In my case, sell your software. It, it will work out or it won't work out, but if you get so wrapped up on even the business plan part of it, you know, where's my cash flow? Where am I? And it's all important. I'm not saying those things are unimportant, but what's most important, what was most important in that mind was not me being consumed by how much the stapler was because I had to have it, or the fax machine I certainly had to have at that point, Um uh, which dates it because it shows you how I haven't used a fax machine in 10 years, So, but it was important at that point. I could have been just wrapped up in, oh, my God, how am I going to pay this credit card bill? Or how am I going to pay Sarah? How am I going to make the house payment? She was right. What I needed to concentrate on was using my skills, my time, my energy on the things that would prevent those problems from happening. And I think that's a key mistake that people make when, when we are young and you're in an entrepreneurial environment. 
quit worrying about gross profit. Yeah. Do the things that get the gross profit and, and it'll follow. Yeah. You know, you don't worry about cash flow. Do the things that create the cash flow and you'll you won't have to worry about the cash flow. But yeah. we we all tend to get myopic and really tuned in on those details that are I'm not saying they're unimportant and important. Obviously, you gotta have cash flow. But I could have spent an hour stewing over something, or I could have spent an hour selling something. Mm-hmm. And um, anyway, we sold well more than six that month, to mm-hmm. Cheryl's advice. And so I never had to worry about, I'm not saying I never had to worry about those problems. I didn't have to worry about that problem that month. And so I had to learn to follow my own mm-hmm. advice and, and things like that. But I think you, in the small business sense, you know, you worry about it. Where's my office going to be? What's, you know, how much is the, what all do I have to do to worry it? Do it. Create your product and center it around your passion. And if you, that passion sells because people believe in a passion, people believe in a vision of something. And if you follow that up with a square, I mean, a, a squared, a squared away product that actually does what you say it's going to do, uh, you will be successful. It will follow. But I think we all get way too out of our heads and don't don't spend our energies on that passion and that product development, whether that's a bar of soap or whether it's a software program or an automobile or whether the product is being the mayor of a town with a vision of improving the town and, yeah. and making things better for everybody. Yeah. Spend your time on those thing on that passion itself and those other things do. I, I'm, after 30 years of this, I'm telling you, the other things fall in place. Yeah, they just do. Hey, this is Russ. Alice and I just want to thank our sponsors for making small town big business possible. Thanks to Fowler Heating and Cooling, to the Watermark Auto Group Foundation, to Southern Trust Bank, and also Swinford Publications. And a big shout out to a producer, Union Street Arts. You can catch new episodes of Small Town Big Business every two weeks on Google Podcast, Spotify, Amazon Music, TuneIn, Podbean, or you can watch the full episodes on our YouTube channel. Thank you so much for joining us for Small Town, Big Business. Let's talk about that vision that you just mentioned because you identify yourself as an entrepreneur, true? Mm-hmm. And uh, how does that transpire into wanting to run for mayor sure. and wanting um, to change? Okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to demonstrate the answer to that back to the only other elective office I've held, which was I was on the school board for eight years. And without going, that's a whole long story and one that I'm proud of and, and really don't want to discount it in any way, but that's not what this is about. But I, I got to highlight one thing. So the reason that I went on to the school work, gosh, here we go back to Cheryl. So I'm bitching and moaning about. We're going to interview her next, we, we by the way. Yeah, yeah, she's, uh, we're going to get on. some other stories. <laughs> so this is how that went. Um, and so at the time, and it's, and I'm not trying to disparage anybody or anybody that was involved in that time. It was a, an acknowledged thing. The school district had some financial troubles and I was being critical of it. And it was, it was very front and center um, at the time. And lots of people were yapping about it and this, that, and the other. And I was being critical, not publicly, but to Cheryl. And she find, she literally said, Absher, when it goes from Michael to my mm. last name, or if she uses the whole name, just like moms, it's bad. Mm. And she said, you are perfectly capable of raising your hand and offering solutions to the problems you're identifying. So either do it or quit talking about it. I'm tired of hearing it. Ooh, mic drop. (laughs) (laughs) So I did. I raised my hand. I got elected. Um, But 
fast forward through some of it. One of the things that at the time that was a big subject was flipping classrooms. And what I mean by that is going from one to many teaching to learning as many to one observing. And and, and the context of that at the time was using some sort of electronic device. We ended up going predominantly with Chromebooks in the school district to do that. But the idea there being whatever that device is, is does not limit you then to just the instruction that your instructor, the teacher can provide, but it's literally the way I phrase it at the time, it's a window to the world of opportunity in education. You can literally, Khan Academy, think of that or whatever. There's, there's chemistry teachers in China that can do a lesson. And you can be in a STEM lab and collaborating with a, with a, a classroom in China or Europe or Heron for that matter. It, just a world of possibilities. But at the time, we couldn't afford post-it notes, much less talking about 4,000 devices for 4,000 students. And there's a lot of iterations through this and, and work that had to happen and fundraising, a lot of hard work on a part of a lot of other people. But I basically, I was president of the school board at that time, and I said, let's just go see how somebody else did it. So we found a school district that was very, actually worse off in many, many ways than our school district demographically, economically, and had some of the same challenges and so forth. I said, let's just go see. Let's just go learn. And literally the answer, first answer I got is, we can't afford the buses to go up to the thing in Chicago. Mm. I'm like, well, I happen to have cars, so you know, we'll figure it out. And we did. And it was so compelling what we learned there during this symposium that they were having. And it was literally a school district that took the plunge, figured out how to do it, and then they had a symposium for other school districts to inspire them on how to do the same thing. And we literally, so there's 13 of us, I think, that went there, some administrators, the IT uh, Jerry, the tech guy, local people might recognize, and then several teachers that were willing at least to consider being cheerleaders for the effort. And when we left that, it was so compelling, almost a moral imperative that we had to do something. And so we started working towards it. And I think it took five or six years, but by, uh, the, by that time frame, um, we had changed it. And my, my takeaway from it was, at least in that setting, that entrepreneurial thinking if not entrepreneurship in of itself, could exist in small government. I'm not sure it can exist in the federal government. I'm not sure it could exist at the state government. But when the opportunity um, opened up, Mayor Butler stepped down and decided after how many, 56 years, he was not going to be the mayor anymore. Uh, I won't, I, I can't say that 10 years ago I thought that that, uh, that would be my interest. But it became a pretty intense interest because I knew I didn't want to serve on the school board more than two terms. Basically, not that I would have opposed it, but I basically had accomplished what I had set out to do. And I, I, always good to have new ideas and other people and so forth. And so, But I loved that element of public service. It felt really good. I, I'm still very proud of that whole effort. Not It goes beyond the Chromebook effort. Um, but that's the tangible thing. That's mm-hmm. the thing people can see. And I'm very proud of it. I'll always be proud of it. And so I thought, where can I? How can I continue to have that feeling or whatever? Uh, now the difference was, is I didn't feel like I could be mayor of the town, and still manage my businesses, uh, which that was possible with the school board, much more of a part-time thing. And so that's that was the only question I had in mind: is okay. If you're ready to leave, I'm. There was no question in my mind. I, I got to say this because this also came true. I already went back and said, you know, I have this blessing by God or whatever it is. Maybe it's 
I don't know, I can't put my finger on it, but I've always seemed to have this ability to pick, the, pick great people uh, to get on the bus, so to speak, and to drive the bus. So I had no question that the people that were there, who were in effect already running the day-to-day of the company for the most part and had been for a while, no question in my mind that they could do it. It wasn't that. It's just like, was I ready to not do any of it? You know what I mean? And uh, I came, I, I felt so impassioned by the concept that entrepreneurship could also exist in the city of Marion's government that I just felt like I had to try it. Mm. And so just like the school board thing, I raised my hand, I made my case, I uh, defined my vision for what I saw, and that vision is not just campaign slogans, it's what we, it's kind of our, it's our workflow, it's our mission statement, it's like, we're doing this, we're doing this, we're doing this, and we just keep plugging at it, we concentrate on those things that yield the fruit. We don't concentrate, okay, we want to be, you know, we don't have these lofty goals that we want to increase population by this amount or this morning businesses. We just do the things that increase population and do the things that increase people being interested in starting their businesses here. We do those functional things knowing if we do them enough and more and consistently, then those things will follow. And so it's just more of the same. I'm just trying to transition still from that those learning experiences to see if they're, and I think my thesis, by the way, I hope, so some people at least recognize, I certainly feel like my thesis is proving true. I think it can and is possible for it to exist in government. I think we're seeing it all around us. And that's not because of my doing. It's because of picking the right people. Again, mm-hmm. that can buy in and add to it, add to that vision mm-hmm. with their own ideas, their own passions, their own visions that then I have to buy into, right, or whatever we all buy into, and we work on it together. And so that's just kind of the story. That's how it all yeah. gears up together. It, it, it's, it is a continuum. Um, and, you know, that's, that's another thing I would piece of advice maybe is that looking back, I think your life changes every so often. Some people say it's every 10 years. Some people say this is my act one, act two, that kind of thing. I think that's true. I think if I could go back and talk to my 18-year-old self, I would say expect that, embrace that, mm-hmm. because you're not going to have the exact same interests and passions at 30 that you do at 18, and you're certainly not going to at 40 than you do 30 or 50 at 40, and I'm excited to see what my passion is when I turn 60. Maybe it's still this. Maybe it's not this. I don't know. So to some extent, I just wish I could. It, going back to my 18-year-old self, I was dogmatic, this is what I'm going to do. This is what my life's going to look like. I'm going to do this, then I'm going to do this, then I'm going to do this. None of which, by the way, none of it came true. Would you say it on air what that was? That yeah, you had I, uh, I had convinced myself that I wanted to be a career army officer. Um, so I applied and was accepted and attended the United States Military Academy at West Point. And uh, one, I was very much a fish out of water. Um, but did not do well at it, was not particularly at first, was not a particularly good soldier. I did not stay very long, left in my freshman or plebe year and came back home. But I left for all the wrong reasons. And um, even though those sound like the right reasons, I should have stuck it out and I'll never forgive myself for quitting ever. And it's, it's almost a, it's a problem for me. And it, but in some ways it drives me to not repeat uh, that failure. 
And uh, so that's what I'm referring to. I mean, it, it, I was watching some graduation ceremonies at uh, West Point and just happened to notice that the Commandant of Cadets was a cadet that was a year ahead of me when I was there. Wow. And wow. so in my, I, I literally was thinking about this yesterday. In my mind, when I was 18, that was going, I wanted that to be me. Okay. I wanted a star on my shoulder. You know, I wanted to be a, a general officer and, and be ending my career at this point in the military, so to speak. So it's just, you know... Life doesn't always work out, obviously, the way you plan. I think it's extremely unfair to expect 18-year-olds to know those kinds of things and to make those lifelong decisions. But nobody could have told me that when I was 18. I mean, my parents couldn't tell it to me. I wouldn't believe it or whatever. But I think as you grow and mature, I think it's best to embrace the fact and really invite it that, hey, be open to new things, new suggestions, um, you may start a business today and a product line today that just leads to something else that you never envision. But you, I envision life a lot like playing pool, like billiards. Sometimes you, you gotta you gotta make a, a sacrifice shot in order to get your cue ball where you need it to be. This shot may not be it. Um, I almost think that in, a, in a different way. That's the way God works. I think, he, but we're not always supposed to know every shot between now and then. But you're supposed to be over here. But to get there, you got to do this, this, and this. And so I've just, that's been my experience, and I'm just now at 50, learning to embrace a lot of that, and, and uh, that makes me excited now that I'm growing up. <laughs> makes me excited for what the future looks like. I feel like that one of those extra pool shots was probably not continuing with your West Point direction, because I, I can't imagine the strengths that I know you to have to be best utilized in a military setting. And I say that coming from a military background, that I think the strengths that you have as a person are best utilized where you have been and where you are now. Um, we are here to interview business owners, successful business owners in small towns. The reason why we want to do that is because we want to understand those benefits and challenges or myths and myth busters that people feel like are part of the small town business ownership. So we have a couple questions for you, very poignant to that. And one of them is just what are some of the challenges you have faced over your tenure of a business owner that are maybe nuanced to being in a small town? And when we say small town, we're framing that with the 50,000 population and under. Well, I think, um, I mean, the thing that comes to mind first in that, which is probably, especially in today's climate, a business owner has this universally, but it, there's, a, there's a challenge and there's a success all wrapped up in the same thing. So let me, let me explain. The challenge is, is you obviously have a smaller pool of people to which, in which to pull from. The success in that is, though, once you do find those people, they are far more, in my opinion, and this has been my experience in this town that I've done business in and the other couple of small towns that we have presence in, they are far, far more engaged in their community than what I would call an itinerant employee. And what I mean by that is, is um, I'm very careful. I'm not saying that we don't hire people, for example, that drive 45 minutes to get here, but I'm very leery of it. Because it doesn't that in LA that sounds like nothing, right? That would mm -hmm. get you half a block. 
45 minutes. I know people that drive three-hour commutes, you know, and that's crazy to me. But in small towns, I'm even leery of people that have a very long commute because this isn't where their home is or the town that I'm dealing in isn't where their home is. I find it, but it is a challenge, again, sometimes to find the right people or enough of all the right people but I've clearly been able, I think, for the most part, to be able to fulfill that. And the benefit is, is once that you do, is they're just, in my opinion, far more engaged to make sure that, I mean, it's it's kind of a, a adage in a way, but I mean, it's true. You're not going to sell a car or sell software or, or uh, any product and be bad doing that with bad business practices and whatever when you know you're going to see them perhaps at Kroger, checking out your groceries, right? So I want to hire the people that are comfortable not just dealing with our customers literally for life, uh, but are comfortable seeing them Saturday at the grocery store and Sunday at church or, or whatever. So I think it's, it's a double-edged thing in a way. Yes, there's challenges because of the pool of labor, but... Um, the other part of that is, is it's just a whole lot cheaper, frankly, to do business in a small market than it is a metro market. I mean, everything from not just your own direct business costs, but when you think of if you do have to recruit people to move here. And by the way, when I was in my software company, I, I immigrated people from five states and two continents to Marion, Illinois, to work in that software business. Uh, yes, you can do that stuff anywhere, but you can do it in a small town. I'm living proof of it. They are living proof of it. We made it like, literally change the corner of an industry from a little office here in Marion um, with at least one employee that wasn't even a native English-speaking um, employee. So it, it can be done. It has been done. I can say it confidently because we did that. So... I kind of have both sides of that, but at the end of the day, what happened, even in that scenario, when they immigrated here, they bought homes here, they enrolled their kids in school here, they engaged in civic activities, and that speaks to the whole um, better roundedness of people that I just feel is so much easier when you've got a, a tighter, not just geographic area to concentrate on, but a tighter community, people that have the opportunity to actually know each other, you know, as opposed to some... Uh, anonymous 40-minute drive when or whatever you're dealing with, which you see nobody that you know to or from work or even sometimes when you leave the workplace, you don't know anybody. When you know people and you've seen them at Kroger or whatever, I think that is huge. I think it's, it's, it, it not only serves for the business to be successful, but for happier people in their lives just in general. People really, most people really do want that sense of community yeah. uh, and they thrive with that sense of community. It seems like with being a business owner that has a workforce, you have the opportunity to really influence the entire ecosystem of the community. And whereas if in a metropolitan area, it really is more just a drop in the big bucket that you don't have quite as much of that influence, but you really do have a potential for impact, a positive impact on that ecosystem. that's really neat. So what do you love most about having a business in a small town and being in the Midwest, doing business here, here in Marion? I think what I like the most is very s- synonymous with 
the whole concept of getting the right people on the on the bus, so to speak, to, in the first place. Because what I love the most about that is not just being able to watch and see them th- succeed. This really ties in well to the last question you asked me. I not only enjoy seeing them succeed on their own terms um, inside of the business, but I love watching what they're able to do on their time. I like the fact when their kids are successful playing Little League ball or whatever, or a cheerleader or uh, academic um, accolades that kids get, or just watching them engage in something other than my businesses or or their work, but seeing them love that, or seeing them buy a home down in, in the downtown historic district and then renovating it or something, which we've had a couple of incidents of that. That is so cool because they... Again, it all it it all ties back to the sense of community, and so I love that part about being in a small town. I don't think you get that if you would live in a neighborhood of a large metropolitan area. I just don't. I don't think so anyway. But uh, so that's the part I think I love the most about it is that, that I get to watch that. It, we're, we're small enough that I get to watch those those uh, other activities that the employees do and how that they can impact because no. I mean, it, Watermark, my, my company, I'd like to think that because of my involvement, for example, that we've had an impact on the community, but just look at the math. We've got 300 people that work there. They're going to be, at minimum, 300 times more impactful than I could have possibly be, just from a mathematical standpoint. So I really enjoy watching them get out and engage in the community um, because they can do, I mean, with an employment base of that size, they can do quite a bit of work. But even our, our little small company, the software company, there was only 10 or 11 of us even there at the end. when we, That was the most that we'd grown. But even they engaged in stuff, and um, it was small enough to be able to still watch, enjoy, and grow with them. And I think that's the part I like the best. Yeah. And in what ways have you found support from being in a small town for your business? <laughs> well, it's reciprocal to those kinds of things that I just described. So if, let me give you a recent example. This time, or a little earlier than this time last year, pandemic hits, uh, while parts of the car business were considered essential businesses, most of it wasn't. And and, um, we had not yet decided whether, you know, are we gonna do layoff people, PPP wasn't a thing just yet, and all that kind of stuff where you could bring them back. Because we literally had no customers and nothing to do. Uh, in pretty scary time. And so basically, um, I told Brad, who runs the company, I said, just fan people out and go pick up trash. Uh, some of them showed up because they had some boxes of, of uh, fruits and vegetables and things to deliver down, I think, either the Salvation Army or senior citizens, I don't remember. And so they just needed to something to do. And that wasn't, we weren't trying to get anything out of it. I just needed them to have something to do and feel good about doing something. Well, you'd be surprised at how much, how many good things happened, not necessarily just to the business, but to those individuals as a result of them having that opportunity. And so, you know, again, having it being big enough to be successful, which Marion is, uh, but small enough that you can still know everybody and, and get to know, and have the, even the opportunity to get to know it enough people where there's that sense of community. When something completely out of the blue like that happened, which we didn't do that in order to get any necessarily sell cars, that's not what I was thinking. I just want them standing there six feet apart in the showroom staring at air. You know, what are you supposed to do with no customers and you can't let people in the door? Uh, So 
but the, I just had so many reports of just, and that was just one or two days. But now take that kind of thing and expand it. If you have that um, business mind, business mindset that, in, in our case, I, I tell them, I said, look, if you're if you're at home and somebody's pulled off the side of the road because their tires, whatever, stop. I'll pay you. Just stop. Offer help. I don't. You don't know what you can do to help, but that's sort of the point. You got to find out or whatever. So we started doing stuff like that, and we're small enough that people recognize that. And literally, they talk about paying it forward or getting it paid back. That stuff multiplies so many times, so fast. Um, and so think about it: if I've got three hundred people or two hundred people or whatever in one particular town, acting that way, yeah. it's we're small enough that that gets recognized. Do you think it would matter? If you're on an interstate in St. Louis, if you stopped and helped somebody, you really think that would, you know, not that you, you still the right thing to do. I just don't know that it would ever come back and tie into anything. So, I, again, being we're just in this perfect sweet spot, demographically, economically, geographically, Marion specific, yeah. that we're big enough to prosper. We've got that economy of scale enough that it's not just every little small town, you know, that's just got a Dollar General store. We've got plenty of industry, plenty of small business, some medium-sized businesses, a couple of very large businesses. All of that gears up together. It's just big enough that, that it, you can actually be very successful here, but small enough that all this other lifestyle, uh, feel-good, oh, I'm actually making a, a difference in something, it's still available here. And so that's what I love specifically about Marion and, and what I think you can, how you can succeed here. Yeah. My last question yeah. then is what advice would you give a startup entrepreneur about starting a business specifically in a small town? Um, and maybe any small town or picking a small town? Uh, really? Either one. And maybe this goes back to what you would tell your 18 year old self. I think it probably does. Again, it's repeating myself, but I would, uh, one, you do have to make sure that you've got an area with those, in my opinion, to fulfill both the economy of scale stuff. Not every small town can support every potential business. That's just the fact of it. So you do have to be in the right place, um, so to speak, to a degree. But I would, it, particularly for a small business because there's all kinds of small business. There's guys like me that just started selling software out of their bedroom on a cell phone with a fax machine and a stapler, um, borrowed on a credit card. Or you've got some that immediately have employees. I think going back to some of these other things I've said about finding the right people and, and having the right economy of scale but not too big is where are where's the place that can, can your employees be successful there? Not just in business but in their personal life. Because... I don't think, I think that's so critical. The, the person that we immigrated here for the software is still our CIO at Watermark now. Um, made a, what a real prophetic statement to me and said, uh, people don't quit jobs, they quit their bosses. Mm. And that really hit me. He did not say that as he was quitting, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> but... I'm taking that to mean this, is that you can take it to mean many things. But I think from a ethos, from a culture, from a business environment in general, I think bosses, 
whether that's a small business person or a big one, need to give more consideration about the quality of life for the employees that they will ultimately have because it's going to be the employees that are serving your customers, not just you. And for long-term success, it is important. Whatever, if it's your town or it's another one that you're considering, what is that environment? What are those opportunities? Don't pick one that's too big, but don't pick one that's too small as far as the business goes for those employee lifestyle, quality of lifestyle type decisioning. And I don't, again, should you consider that? Is that going from zero to one? Maybe not. Going to zero to one is figuring out how to sell the next customer. But when you get into that growth mode, when you're adding people, you, those are the very, very, very important things that have to be considered. Yeah. yeah. Mike, today we're on Tower Square Plaza. Yeah. People may have heard the bell ringing, which is apropos. Downtown revitalization is very important to you. Yeah. This building, the Citadel that we're broadcasting from, is very important to you. Can you speak on that? I can. So um, this building is 107 years old, I think, this year. So I'm not quite that old. It's been here, obviously, my entire life. Um, I've always thought it was a stately building. It's mostly been in disrepair for my entire lifespan. And so I've only heard stories of its former grandeur and what it was. It was built as a hotel originally in a bank on the bottom floor. And I've just always loved it. What I've even Now, it was not called the Citadel when it was built. That was the, uh, I think the owner that acquired it in the 70s, Mr. Anderson, named it that. I've always loved that name um, because once I looked up what that was, is it's a fortress. It's a fortress that overlooks a city or protects a city. And so ethos, interestingly enough, that we're this program that we're putting inside this building also fits into that in the sense that ethos is a Greek term that talks about, some could call it just community spirit. That's an easier way. Um, it goes far beyond. We had an ethos at Watermark as opposed to a mission statement because I don't like mission statements because I think they're blasé, made up, and worthless. Um, but we did have an ethos, which was how we're going to act, how we're going to be, what we're going to aspire to be. And so ethos also is more of a, a culture. It speaks to a culture, not just a mission, but kind of what's, what, if a mission statement is what somebody sees on the outside, ethos is the blood that pumps through your body. I mean, that's what you're made of. I mean, that's, that's how we're going to be, regardless of what, whether the mission is fulfilled or not. This is who we are. Um, and so that concept of community spirit and this is who we are and a fortress overlooking a city, combining my love for my small town and my like and respect for this stately old building and wanting to see it revitalized in of itself and the fact that obviously with my training and my background of being an entrepreneur, I want to create jobs. Mm -hmm. I want to, that, that not only fits my personal love but my civic duty and just happens to be in this building that nobody else has found the way to figure out how to revitalize it. So it all just kind of came up magically together. And um, I really got inspired to seek out and have the Watermark Foundation, which is the um, philanthropic arm of Watermark. It's the benef beneficiary of Watermark's philanthrop philanthropy, I will put it that way. They bought the building. And in putting a business incubator here, that that specific project, my, one of my first duties as mayor was in May, two years ago. Matter of fact, I'm doing it again this coming Memorial Day Monday. Uh, was doing a program out at, at uh, a speech at 
Rose Hill Cemetery, which also coincided with the 100th year anniversary of the Goddard Chapel, which is a beautiful Gothic chapel that a lot of people don't recognize. It's also obviously 100 years old. But I didn't know the story of that. And it's named Goddard Chapel after Mayor Leroy Goddard, who years after he was mayor, donated that to the city. Kind of a, not as a legacy thing, I don't think, as so much as, as a thank you is the way I took it for his opportunity. He, be, he went on and moved, actually left here in the 1870s, I think, and became a very successful banker in Chicago. But uh, I got thinking about that a little bit. I thought, well, that's really cool. Now, I don't desire to have my name on anything, but... I, I'm a guy that doesn't like the concept of doing something and then having people enjoy it 100 years from now or mm. whatever. I want to live it right now. I mean, mm. it's just my impatience, which is probably why I didn't do very well in the, in the military. But uh, you'll know that is what I call living your Polaroids real time. Mm. And so I just decided, well, this would be a really cool project to tackle. And it sort of, it not only revitalizes a key component of Tower Square, it uh, I've thought about this building a long time. It was here before my grandfather was born and will be here very likely after my grandkids who aren't born yet are dead. So it's worthy of being revitalized. It need, if it's going to be here, it needs to be productive and useful. And this concept of it being the tallest building here downtown and for years was the tallest building in all of Williamson County and overlooking things uh, well beyond my time as mayor, it really appealed to me. And so uh, we kind of took that ethos culture, the word ethos and ethos, and made an acronym out of it. As you, I think that was your idea of economic and technical opportunities, uh, entrepreneurial yeah. technical opportunities. Yeah. And so we just kind of fit it all together, and we're we're on yeah. our way to making that all. Work. And how do you see that connected with the rest of Marion business wise and well, setting for, up that environment? It's that. It's it's. Being able to demonstrably create something that is a greenhouse for growth, okay? Uh, proving out. It's one thing. It's kind of like going saying, okay, it's a campaign slogan to say we're going to re-envision them all. It's another thing when you are elected and then you get a whole team of people re working to re-envision them all and actually doing it. It's one thing to say we're going to revitalize downtown. We're going to uh, bring new jobs or bring new growth or whatever. Well, to fulfill that, you've got to start doing those things that actually accomplish that. It goes back to what I said, quit, quit worrying about the profit. Worry about the things that bring the profit, right? These are simply all the kinds of things. And although this project was at first, if you are familiar with it downtown, a lot of people have caught lots of feels and lots of vision and are on their own with lots of private capital doing the very same things with buildings that they have an attachment to. And that's what it takes. That's what that's what that culture of growth, inspiration, and opportunity is supposed to foster, is to have other people catch fire. So why this, why now, whatever, if no other reason to serve as a demonstrable inspiration is that this is what we can be and this is how we go about doing it. It's just a matter of finding, again, the right people to get on the bus, yourself included on that. I feel blessed to have found you to help head that project. But it's all the same stuff. Do you guys see a theme? There's all the same elements, whether you're dealing with private business or you're doing it in civic service or in your private life, that's important just to grasp onto and uh, run with. Yeah. Well, it's exciting. I can tell you passion. Yeah. It's exciting. Well, I want to thank you. Thank you very much, Mayor Mike Abster of Marion, Illinois. Thank you. Uh, covered a lot of topics today, and all of them are, are exciting and passionate about Marion, Illinois, and that's what our show is about. And I appreciate that very much. 
Folks may be wondering how to connect with us, and you can do that easily by emailing russell at watermarkethos.org. Be happy to answer any questions and more about the Citadel building or or the Ethos project. Um, We are Allison Hassler and Russell Williams, and we want to thank our sponsors also for making this podcast and this broadcast available, um, Southern Trust Bank and also Fowler Heating and Cooling, and of course, the Watermark Auto Group Foundation. So thank you so much for joining us and hope that you will subscribe to this podcast and join us for another upcoming episode of Small Town, Big Business. Thank you, Russ. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Mike.